Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello, and welcome to Safety Talk. On this show, we discuss and bring attention to a wide range of personal safety and security products and solutions that are available to businesses and individuals in both the digital world and the physical world. I'm your host and personal safety expert, Pete Canavan. As a self-employed information technology consultant since 1995, and as a martial artist for over 20 years, I bring decades of personal safety and security experience to my role as the host of this show. To learn more about how I can help your corporation, college, or conference, please visit my personal website at PeteCanavan.com. So thanks so much to our listeners for being here today. We've got another incredible guest, and it is what is sure to be a very informative episode for you today. Our guest has been a pediatric cardiologist and pathologist for nearly 40 years and has been a recognized authority on healthcare policy for more than 20 of them. His education and training has included Yale, Chicago Med, the Mayo Clinic, Northwestern University, Harvard, and he also holds an MBA from Anderson Graduate School. He has published more than 250 articles and 12 books on the practice of medicine, as well as healthcare policy in the United States. His latest book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, States Care and Market-Based Medicine, offers both the correct diagnosis and the curative treatment for a critically ill patient we call the U.S. healthcare system. Today, as part of our discussion, he will put the COVID-19 virus in proper perspective for us, and more important, he will explain what we must learn if we want the next outbreak to be less of a problem. So I want to first and foremost thank him for his selfless service as a healthcare practitioner and for working to heal countless children, I'm sure, as I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dean Waldman to Safety Talk. Welcome, Dr. Waldman. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show with us today. Uh, there's so much I want to discuss with you, so we're going to see how much we can squeeze into our hour here today uh, together. Sound good with you? Sounds like a plan. Okay, fantastic. So we'll start right off, obviously, with the what is current at the time of this recording is the COVID-19, the COVID-19, uh, coronavirus pandemic that is sweeping the globe. And with every passing day, we are learning more and more about it. And a lot of it is not good. And so as a medical doctor with over 40 years of experience, obviously, my first question to you, sir, is just how serious is this in your opinion? I think it is less serious than people think it is. That doesn't mean it isn't serious. It just means we are dealing with, uh, frankly, the major reason for all the fear is unknown rather than this is a biologic agent and it's suddenly, oh my God. I mean, you know, people are talking about comparing this to Ebola, which I think we really need to begin to develop a sense of perspective. And I, I want to say up front that what I'm now going to say, I couldn't say two months ago. Two months ago, we didn't know much at all about this virus, about its behavior, about its uh, case fatality rate, about how it was transmitted, all these things. So it was reasonable to be very fearful of, oh my God, is this you know, another, you know, plague or is, what is this? So that was a reasonable position for both the administration or for that matter for people 
to take to be really scared. However, now we know some important things, and I think that we need to back off on the hysteria. For instance, if you're a healthy, you know, 30, 40 year old, the likelihood that this will harm you or kill you is extremely remote. It is the 80-year-old diabetic with chronic lung disease who's been smoking for 40 years, uh, who also has some heart failure, that's the person at really significant risk. And even so, the risk for that person uh, statistically is around one in seven. For the average person, it's one in thousands. So I am trying to suggest that people need to be less fearful. Now, now, there are some numbers, though, that have come out that have broken down the, the, the fatality rate according to age range. And it's one of the things that I've used to communicate to my kids. I have three teenage boys uh, about the seriousness of the problem, because according to the latest information that I saw within the last few days, about 18% of those that were dying were between the ages of about 18 and 25 or so. So that's high. Uh, that's the, almost the, one in five. The, 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 real, um, the real issue here is pre-existing condition. And what I mean by that is, is for all you know or I know, God forbid what I'm saying is true of your voice. If you don't have a um, healthy, normal immune system, whatever your age is, you are at risk of serious illness or even death from pretty much any virus you want to name. This one's certainly included in that list. So therefore, I have to wonder about a lot of these um, healthy people who are 30, 40 years old who die with coronavirus. Is that because they really were healthy or not? I don't know. My point is, that this is not Ebola. This is not, I mean, give you uh, statistics. Ebola, the case fatality rate for Ebola is 88%. The case fatality rate for this virus uh, across the board, regardless of age, is 2.7%. Now, okay. I would just assume 0%, as would you, as would everybody, but the fact is, it ain't Ebola. That's the point that I wanna make, that this isn't. Um, uh, a, a deadly virus, except on, on infrequent occasions. So having, I, I think part of what's going on, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree, is that because of that unknown, and because it's sort of being, you know, pushed down our throats every day by the media in terms of how many infections and how many death rates, and they're not focusing really much at all on the recovery numbers, which are significant as well. Obviously, we want them to be as high as possible, but the, the it seems that the the really the the rate of infection and the ease in which this is spreading is what is such cause for alarm. And hopefully, the vast majority of people that you know are, are healthy will be recovering from it. But when I see young people also succumbing to it, uh, that is, is something that is concerning to me. I mean, I have work that I do as an IT consultant for various businesses, and some of those include hospitals. And I was at 
uh, a Williamsport Regional Medical Center a few weeks ago. And this was when things were just really starting to percolate and come to, you know, ahead and, and people were kind of thinking about what's going on. So I was like, you know what, this is, I'm, I'm not going to be coming back here, you know, for a while. And they, they actually called me about a week later and like, hey, you know, we need to do something else. I was like, I'm not going back here. I don't want to be no, in a hospital if I don't have to, you know. Right. Um, you know, I have an N95 mask. I have PPE gear. I've got gloves uh, and whatnot. But it's it's still a very scary emerging situation at this point in time, as I said, as, as we're recording this, and hopefully it, it does calm down as quickly as we can. But having to remain at home, self-quarantined for a month or more is, I think, going to cause way more problems. And I am totally sympathetic to the president, as well as everybody who's concerned about the economy, because the economic repercussions of this are going to be felt for years or, down or, the road. Or, dev- or frankly, I fear devastating. And um, let me put this a little bit in perspective, which is why I'm trying to calm people down. The uh, death toll, uh, as of, I don't know, three, four hours ago, when I last checked, in this country was 4,700 people. Um, the flu last season killed 61,200 people. Right. 40,000 committed suicide last year, et cetera, et cetera. So my point is, look, I don't want anybody to die. You know, <laughs> I'm a physician. That's, that's my sort of commitment to life. Having said that, 4,700 is not a reason to crush, and that's the only word I would use, the economy. And there's something else you brought up that I want to bring up right now, which is the number of people who recover. Think about this. The way you really stop any epidemic, any viral epidemic, is by immunization. Whether that immunization is by vaccines, as in you know, diphtheria and smallpox and so forth, we immunize people against that so that we have what is known as herd immunity. So even if uh, a smallpox virus got out into the community, most 99% of us have herd immunity because we are vaccinated. Now, we don't have a vaccine for COVID-19. Those recovered people and all the, I think, probably millions of people who have COVID virus, because this is a very contagious, easily spreadable um, uh, disease, and we're not testing everybody. We're only testing those people who have the potential to be symptomatic or, God forbid, you know, seriously ill. Um, I'm hoping that we are developing herd immunity And that's the way we're going to stop this virus, not by social distancing. Social distancing prevents or reduces the spread, but the people who get it, who are healthy, who then recover, who then have antibodies against it, are the herd that is immune, and that's what stops a viral epidemic. So, uh, Dr. Dean, I'm glad you said that about the, the, the flu and the numbers comparatively to this, because yet yeah, tens of thousands of people die every single year in this country, and we don't shut the Last economy year, down. 61,200. Yeah, see, that's a ton of people. And, it, and we, of course, we don't want to see anybody die from it, but the bottom line is people do die from it. So, I've also read that this could end up being a seasonal thing like the flu, but I've also read that it has, I guess, 
uh, I don't know if you would call features, but uh, signatures of HIV and MERS and SARS. So does that sound more like a bioengineered virus versus no, a naturally I, occurring I, one? I, or is it just sort of like uh, something that is evolved? I, I, I would argue that I, I, in some ways I might be a conspiracy theorist, but not in this. The fact is, I don't think this is engineered by anybody. I think nature created this just the way SARS was created, just the way, I mean, these viruses naturally mutate and there are plenty of them sitting around in animals right now that we don't know about. But I'm sure you know this, but your, your audience needs to know. Right now, uh, Pete and I are sitting here and each of us has got as few as maybe three or four and as many as you know, 10 or 12 viruses alive in our mouths right this minute. The fact is, if you don't have a virus that makes you sick, if you have a virus but you're not sick from it, you don't care. And my point is, there are, I suspect, millions of Americans who have COVID-19 who I think are going to develop immunity and are going to provide the herd immunity that's going to stop this more than anything else. By the way, you know, I don't know if you know this, uh, for sure Kaiser in California and I think somewhere in New York are testing vaccines right this minute. Wow. No, I did not know that. I, I heard something that, you know, they were hopeful that something was going to come to fruition soon. They're already testing. I know I have no knowledge of the results of the test. Um, the fact that nobody's yelling and screaming that it works makes me a little worried. But uh, the test started, I'm guessing, two weeks ago, maybe uh, three weeks, but something Already. like two weeks ago. So that leads me to a another question, which is, so you don't believe this was something that escaped from the lab in Wuhan about 20 miles away, that infectious disease research center? I think it escaped from a bat in a or some other live animal in the live animal um, in that wet market, market uh, in uh, somewhere in Wuhan, and that's what happened. That's how okay. And then the other thing is, do you believe it's been out there a long time? Because you said you believe millions of us probably have it and aren't exhibiting symptoms, just like no, the flu. No, no, I, I, uh, I can't, I can't say that. I can only say we know that it's been out in Wuhan since November of 2019. The reason I said millions is because before we really clamped down on uh, the country, there were hundreds, possibly thousands, but let's say hundreds of people who brought in the virus and it's so easily uh, spreadable, contagious uh, on hard surfaces, on stainless steel, it lives for up to three days, um, in New York, you know, everybody is next to everybody else. I mean, I grew up in Manhattan. Yeah. That's where <laughs> I'm from. Surprised. I was born in New York, too. Grew up in North Jersey. It's like very, very, you know, everybody compact. Is, Everybody's yes. right next to each other. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's a hub for travel. So, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there might be several million Americans. Frankly, I think there are several million Americans who, if we tested everybody, would test positive and they're fine. They're healthy. Mm -hmm. See, and unfortunately, you know, I don't think enough people are, are saying that. Now, obviously we don't know everything, but 
we have to look at it like, well, what, how have we dealt with viruses in the past? Yes, there have been some really bad ones. We had the Spanish flu 100 years ago. Obviously, that was horrible. And we've had things like Ebola and, you know, and MERS and, and SARS and, you know, HIV and uh, swine flu, H1N1, right? We've had all of these things that have, yes. that have appeared, uh, you know, in the last, you know, 50 or 100 years. And this one, for whatever reason, has lots of people, I think, panicked is, is really the appropriate word because of the way that the attention is being you know, given to it, you can't get away from it. Every email, every text, everything on television is about it. And yes, we need to stay informed, but we also need to do what we can to try to to mitigate, you know, being bombarded with so much information. It kind of just gets everybody to, you know, want to sit in their house forever and not come out and get into a state of depression. And the president is right in saying, you know, we got to watch what happens. And that's why the guy needs to be a cheerleader for the American people. He needs to give hope out there. Now, he was very serious yesterday when he spoke because it is serious. I mean, 100,000 people dying is not a good thing, right? I mean, with the economy has really, been going I really great. Have, I really have my doubts about that number, uh, quite frankly. I mean, if you look at the rate of, um, quite frankly, mortality, case fatality rate for this condition over the last three, no, nine weeks, the likelihood that we're going to get into the 100,000 I think is extremely remote. I think it's more likely, and I repeat, I want zero, but I think it's more likely to be in the 15,000 range. And then we're going to turn around and go, well, wait a minute. Last year's flu killed 60,000 and this thing killed 15,000. Why did we go ballistic? And I think it comes back to what you said a minute ago, which is for reasons that I don't think I want to get into, the media has taken what is a danger and turned it into a nightmare. And yes. I think that they have over, they've ginned up this thing where people are terrified of a virus that is very unlikely to do harm to you. You're a healthy young man. Me, I'm old, so maybe I'm at risk. Your boys, your wife, uh, they are at low risk very low risk, not high risk. And I think that somebody needs to be out there saying that. And I wish that uh, Dr. Fauci wouldn't be talking about 240,000 people dying. Right. Because that, that's sending a message that, you know, people are thinking, oh my God, you know, someone was a quarter million people, you know, how many people are in this country? You know, one in how many are probably going to die? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be my neighbor? Is it going to be my kid or my wife? And so now we, our brains start to do all of these crazy things, right? We start to think about this and it can run rampant because we can't get away from it. So let's, let's, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and, and look at it from, at the, at the China standpoint, because, you know, the president's called it, you know, the Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus. And, you know, I mean, so many viruses are named after the places they came from, right? I mean, that's just what you do. So uh, of course, Saudi the media Arabian wants to say it's all... virus. Yeah, Middle I mean, the media wants to call everybody racist all the time. But, I mean, was it appropriate for him to call it the Chinese virus? Of course it was. And, and you know, there's no reason to politicize any of this stuff. Uh, I really have a disdain, uh, frankly for our politicians, mostly in Washington, who are um, um, politicizing it either way. And um, I got to give a lot of credit. I don't know if you've been paying a lot of attention to this, but a lot of the governors 
are doing exactly what they should do, which is they're deciding what is the best approach for their state, for their people, and they have differences of opinion. You know, if you look at what Florida is doing versus uh, what uh, New York is doing, um, I don't want to sit here and say which one's right, but I do want to sit here and say that those governors have the right to make the decision rather than be told what to do by Washington. And we'll turn out three months from now, we'll find out, well, you know, was the uh, soft lockdown in um, uh, Florida um, uh, better or worse than the uh, total quarantine in Manhattan? I don't know the answer to that. I have a guess, but I don't like speculating, so I only uh, make statements based on evidence. And the sure, fact and time, is, and time will evidence. tell. Time will tell. Time will tell. But uh, I reiterate this: this number, this this fear of of death by COVID virus, COVID nineteen. Put it in perspective: four thousand seven hundred people have died in nine weeks. So why is it nineteen? Is this the nineteenth coronavirus COVID we've identified? For coronavirus, so C for corona, V for virus, D for disease, and since many of the viruses, specifically SARS, MERS, the common cold, are all coronaviruses, they're qualifying coronavirus disease with the year in which it was started, which was 2019. Oh, so that's okay. why it is COVID, coronavirus disease, 2019. So glad you clarified that because I did not know that. I thought maybe it meant the 19th one. I didn't really do a bunch of research on it, but it's just that's no. what they called it, you know. So is China responsible for this? Should they have done more? Because every day we're finding out they look like they really dropped the ball and, you know, they suppressed a lot of the early reports that their, you know, medical staff and their doctors were trying to say, hey, you know, we need to, to keep an eye on this. And they were like, nope. And now, you know, we've heard doctors have disappeared. Some of the initial ones have, have died. Um, what do you think in terms of their responsibility to all of this? Um, I, um, I regret that I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but, you know, I have to be truthful. Uh, they behaved the way a totalitarian system behaves. They want to control information and that is more important and control people, more important than pretty much anything else. Specifically, you said, uh, Dr. Lee, who is uh, the first person to actually call the alarm, you know, died of the coronavirus. Right. The lab, very interesting. Here's another uh, piece of interesting information. The lab in Shanghai that identified the genome of uh, the COVID virus, COVID-19, released it in the inter on the internet on January 11th, uh, 2020. On January 12th, 2020, the Chinese government closed down the lab. Unbelievable. That's just, so, it's so sad. It's so sad because what their actions have caused countless people to suffer and die. And, you know, all in the, in the name of trying to basically save face. And uh, exactly right. And yep. it's it's a it's a sad state of affairs when when that's the sort of reaction that they do because they want, like you said, that totalitarian control. 
over the people, over the information and the flow of that. And something I read, which was really interesting, and the only way it was found out was because of uh, monthly reports that are that come out from the cell phone providers. And I don't know if you've heard this, but you know how they, they've said only so many people have, have died from this in China, you know, 3,500 or whatever it is now. But that in the last month, 21 million cell phone accounts were closed. Now, why would that be the case? Is it just to shut it down so people can't talk? Because in yes. China, your cell phone is everything. They track you, you on you, it. You use it to you pay know for that everything. China it's essential. China threw out, what was it, about 10 days ago, there were, uh, I think the number was 11, but there were a number of Wall Street Journal reporters who were trying to get at the root of the history and what was going on in China, and China expelled them. Yes. Unbelievable. Now, but yeah, I mean, I, that's let, an interesting let's, stat. Let's look at something good from that uh, truth, that, that experience. We are learning uh, a couple of things, we, the United States. Number one, we are learning that, regrettably, we cannot trust the information that came out of China. And sadly, since the World Health Organization seems to be in China's pocket, yes. we no longer can trust the information coming out of the World Health Organization. I'm sorry, I wish it were otherwise, but we, we are... Once, uh, what is it? Once uh, bitten, twice uh, shame on you. Twice bitten, shame on me. Well, we've learned a lesson. Number two, more important, my friend Chip Roy, who is a congressman from Texas, is introducing or at least supporting. Uh, I like the guy, so I, I mention his name. Um, he's a really smart, good person. Um, introducing a bill to assure that our pharmaceuticals are produced in United States or United States territories. Apparently, uh, by history, over 20 years ago, something like 40% of our pharmaceuticals or the intermediaries for our pharmaceuticals were produced in Puerto Rico. But the tax laws were changed and that literally crushed the industry in Puerto Rico. And since it's cheaper, we can get it from China. So we are getting something like 90% of the precursors and the intermediaries of our drugs. I mean, I think about uh, Cipro and, um, you know, right. which is the specific for anthrax. You know, mm -hmm. God forbid there were a biologic attack and I'm not, let's just say it uh, out there. If, sure, if. Do we have, a, do we have enough uh, manufacturing capability to create uh, 330 million doses of Cipro right now? I would bet the answer is no. There's no way. Well, the Chinese are producing we all of this? No way. On, we need to be dependent on no one. And I say right. this um, with some uh, disdain about China, uh, something like 30 or 40% of our intermediaries come from India. And I certainly trust the Indian government a hell of a lot more than I do the uh, the Chinese government, but I still say we have to be independent when it comes to these life-saving modalities so that we can do what, what is in the best interest of our people, and that means controlling our pharmaceuticals. 
And, and President Trump has been saying this for many years, since way before he was president, that there was That's a true. major trade imbalance, that we were too dependent on China, and, we, and, and, and of course, and borders, right? So how many nations figured out how important borders were during all of this, right? So this global economy concept, which has been pushed for decades, and now has gotten to the point where pretty much the only thing we produce in the United States is debt, right? is the problem that we're seeing Consumers. now, which is we're so dependent on China and other countries, but so much so on China because it was always, you know, these companies look at it as dollar signs. Like we can manufacture over there, we can save a ton of money, we can make a lot more money here, let's do it. And, you know, one of the things that the president has done is he's been able to bring some of the manufacturing back, but I definitely agree with you that this is going to accelerate that process and we're going to see a lot more of those critical pharmaceuticals and industries come back to the United States, like the ventilator production, right? We're not even making that many in this country. We do, but again, it's another product, right? And it's kind of been the joke. It's like everything you pick up, made in China, made in China, made in China. Well, it's because it's gotten to the point and we've allowed them to do that. And we've exported our money to them in exchange for the products that they sell to us. Let, let me uh, um, amplify that in this way. The, you know, I have an MBA, and so one of the things that they they hammer in business school is for uh, a business, or for that matter, an industry, or for that matter, a country, to be successful, you need sustainable competitive advantage, right. okay? What does the United States have as sustainable competitive advantage? One word, innovation. And if you look at all of the technology, including the ventilators, how they work, how they're efficient, how they uh, remain uh, free of germs, et cetera, et cetera. All this technology really was innovated in this country. And what we need to do, now I'm on the sort of geopolitical end, but more than health. It's all, it's all relevant, though. But it is all inter, interrelated. We need to not suppress with government regulations and so forth, we need to encourage entrepreneurship. We need to encourage innovation. We need to encourage risk-taking. And by risk-taking, I mean financial risk-taking, which is what, I'm sorry to say, uh, the right, uh, the left side of the uh, political spectrum wants uh, to say, oh, you should be secure, the government will take care of you, and I want to say, no, I want to do it on my own. I want my next-door neighbor to invent something new and make money on it, and oh, by the way, it'll make my life better. That's our, that's our national sustainable competitive advantage, and we need to do more to release it. I, I amen to that because it's true. This country is, was built on it. That's what makes us such an incredible, you know, beacon in the world is the fact that we have the freedoms to explore our desires and our interests and the things that we're passionate about. And we don't have to be told all the time. But as you said, the left wants to make it so that we're, you get a certain amount of money and this is it. You get your health care and you get everything. I mean, thank God we didn't have socialist health care during all this. Oh my goodness. I can't even, it gives, makes me shudder to think about it. So well, I got to say, I love the fact that, that the president went out there and said, we need a public private partnership. We don't need the government uh, ordering, mandating uh, ventilators. 
Well, <laughs> that's like the government, uh, Obamacare mandated health care. That is the, my services as a physician. You can't do that. Nope. Not if I'm a free person. So that opened up Pandora's uh, box. Well, I can't applaud him more than saying the right thing to do was to say the government will help you, will get out of your way, business, go make 200 million masks or 500 million masks, go make 100,000 ventilators right now, please do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll make some money, but meanwhile, our people will get ventilators and masks and whatever. Yep. And, and he was right to, to try to do it without invoking the Defense Production Act. You know, everybody was yes. screaming at him, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? Because if you ask them, you don't have to force them. And that's a much better relationship going forward. Because if you tell somebody to do something, they're going to resent you for that. I don't care who you are, what you do, what company, what industry, what individual. If I tell you to do something, it could be as simple as go get a drink of water you're going to be like, who are you to tell me to do that? I'll yeah, get it if I feel I'm like it. Thirsty. Right. Yeah. right. That's, and that's my point is that it doesn't matter the, the scale of it or the scope of it. You, you try it, you ask nicely. And if they produce, wonderful. Everybody's happy. Now, and we've seen so many industries step up. And so that leads into really what, what lessons are we learning from all of this that's going on right now? So let's, you know, and let's, you know, you talk about how, how not to waste this. And uh, you sent me something about like the eight ways that we couldn't waste this or something that um, I want to get your, your feedback on. How do we take this terrible thing that's occurring and not, quote, waste it and learn from it? There are several things that, that are really kind of, to me, fairly obvious. Number one, um, we need to play war games. What I mean by that, okay. I mean, you, you think about the military. They, they uh, some, somebody somewhere in the Pentagon is sitting thinking about, well, what if uh, a faction in China invades Taiwan or uh, South Korea? What are we going to do? And what are our responses? And what are our resources to do that? And okay, well, what if uh, a bomb goes off in Kashmir? you know, the, the disputed territory between Pakistan and India. Okay, what would be the U.S. response? Now, God willing, we hope none of this stuff is going to happen. Right. But the military guys plan for it so they can, if the you-know-what hits the fan, they can pull out this thing and say, well, we've considered this, Mr. President, and these are our options. Fine. I turn around and say, look, we've had epidemics in 2002, 2007, 2009, 2012, 2016, now 2019, 2020, not to mention all the flu seasons in between. We need to sit down and have our planners in peace and quiet when it isn't epidemic time, play war games both for the medical response of what if a virus hits that uh, uh, hits uh, pregnant women only, or a virus that causes blindness. I mean, I'm making this stuff up, but sure, the point sure. is they should consider these, these various scenarios. Now, they need to plan both medical responses and fiscal responses. I mean, we are suddenly playing catch-up ball with a $2 trillion um, uh, quote, bailout, unquote, with all sorts of pork in it, which makes me really 
unhappy. We should have had a plan in place to say, well, what if another severe respiratory virus hits that's very contagious? Okay, well, what do we do uh, medically? Uh, for example, we had a stockpile, I don't know if you know this, we had a stockpile of 100 million masks uh, in 2008. Uh, in 2009, that stockpile was used in defense for the H1N1 um, um, epidemic at that time. A lot of those masks, of course, went to healthcare workers, but it went to other people. Okay, they didn't restore the stockpile. Unbelievable. So, How could you not do that? Uh, well, I'd rather was, not comment except to say that <laughs> we need to learn from our own experience and everybody else's experience, which gets me to the next thing. We need to learn the lessons of, for example, what one state does in response to this to another state and look at it after the fact and say, oh, well, that worked better than that, whatever, whatever that is. Right. We can look at, for example, Italy versus South Korea. South Korea went ballistic with testing early on, testing everybody they could get, get their hands on. Italy said, no, just those people that we think might be infected. So South Korea knew where their hotspots were, knew where to put isolation and quarantine. And the last time I looked, they had something like 100 and some deaths where um, uh, Italy has a what? Something like almost 4,000 deaths. And the two countries have the exact same, almost the same uh, population size. So it's reasonable to compare those two or contrast those two. My point is we need to learn. You said, you quoted me by saying we shouldn't waste this. We need war games that are uh, both, uh, outbreak war games that are both mm -hmm. um, medical and fiscal. We need to learn from um, other people uh, both our states and selves, uh, our own countries. We need to learn something really interesting, I think, that ain't going away, which is that remote works. Yes. Yes. Okay, so let's. My, I have two grandsons, and um, my daughter is telling me, you know, they are getting at least as good an education right now at home with all the massive resources that are available online. They have these schedules by age. I bet you, you may not know this, in which case your teenage boys should. They have schedules for, well, if you're a, 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 a nine-year-old in the third grade, uh, here's a possible schedule for you to consider. Well, reading from 9.30 to 10, uh, uh, gym or playtime from 10 to whatever. And, and they're, all these, they're all out there. People have already thought this stuff up. My point is that uh, my, my son-in-law is working, and my daughter-in-law, um, uh, both my children are married, uh, are working from home 100%. And uh, they're telling me they're just as efficient and effective sitting in front of, I mean, uh, my son-in-law uh, works for Cisco, and he's got video conferencing with India and with China, and he does that all the time. So right. what difference does it make where he does that? And um, I think a lot of companies, I, th I think fundamentally, our economy and the way that we do business is going to change as the result of this. Because right. people are now seeing how this 
can work. Like, wait a minute, like colleges, for example, I think colleges are going to have a big problem trying to come back from this because wait a minute, I can get the same education. I can take the same courses. I mean, okay, you can't do your hands-on labs, you know, maybe, but everything else you can learn on the computer. My kids now have online curriculums. You know, we, we're working from home. We're video conferencing with people like you and I are using, you know, we're using Zoom. Zoom is exploded in their use because there's a huge demand now. People need to be able to do this. My wife's a teacher. She's a second grade teacher. It's funny you mentioned education. Yeah. And so she's now having uh, about every couple of days, all the teachers and the administrators, they're going on to a conference call and they, uh, you know, using uh, Zoom uh, or uh, Google um, Google Hangouts, I think. And they are, you know, collaborating. They're hearing what's going on, how you doing with the students or anything we can need. You know, this is what's going on. We don't know how long it's going to last, blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about it, but they're able to discuss it and, you know, ask questions. And you can have 50, 60, 70, 80 people all together and it works, you know, and, and, you, and you can she can have people. her second grade. And this class. is important, right? Just being able to see somebody. Phone is one thing. I can't see it. On the other end of the line, you could be going, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever, right? But with a video, you can't. You can't, you know, mimic that. People see the, she can, the body she language. Can teach her, she can teach her students one on one or we'll say one on 10 uh, by video conferencing. For those so that, that have the technology, yes. And, you know, somebody raises his hand and say, Mrs. Smith, I've got this. Or, Mrs. Kahneman, I've got, uh, I have a question. Okay, a ask your question. Yep. Uh, it, it, it really works. I bet you, here's something else you don't know that Stanford's been working on for a while that hasn't yet come out, but I, I really have great hope. Believe it or not, they are working on virtual reality teaching of surgery. Wow. Now, think about that for just a minute. In other words, I don't have to practice on a human being to learn to be good with what I do. I take care of babies with heart disease, okay? Right. If I could do that in virtual reality, I don't have to have anybody else except a pair of gloves and a, and a mask and a computer, and that's all I need to learn and make mistakes in virtual reality. My point is, your statement that that uh, the whole structure of commerce and uh, education, I think, is going to not go back to the way it was. I think it's going to have a big shot in the arm and go, whoa, I can get all this stuff online. And I can have a study group. You know, I, I went to a business school, right? What's the, the key beyond the professors and the curriculum is your study group. Well, we had five people in my study group, and we can video conference. As opposed to having it all meet in the my, library. <laughs> yeah, instead of meeting in my dining room, which is what we did, I don't know how many times, with my wife serving food at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and we're writing papers. Memories. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think this is another lesson that we, a good lesson that we can learn from this experience. And I want people to take a positive view of this and say, okay, uh, by the way, one other thing that, that isn't being pushed, if you look on the internet, you, you'll see it, but, uh, and the president did it with Mike Lindell, uh, bringing him up to the podium. But there are thousands of Americans from you know, some lady in the middle of nowhere, my daughter is sitting at home with her sewing machine just making masks, right. okay? There are 
probably millions, certainly hundreds of thousands of Americans are saying, what can I do to help my community or my neighbor? Uh, Sure, even if it's just uh, to go shopping for somebody. I I was in a store, uh, I don't know, about four or five days ago, and I saw this young uh, uh, lady in her mid-20s with this huge basket of food. And I said uh, something about, boy, you're really stocking up. She said, oh, no, no, no. I'm buying this for my 88-year-old grandmother, her next-door neighbor who's about 70, and the two people who live in in the houses right next door. They all need food, and so I'm that, – that's, that's, you know, that's just the American people saying um, – you know, I'll tell you something that, that sounds unrelated, and to me it, um, I'll get a little emotional here. Did you see the movie Sully? Oh, about the guy landing the plane. Yes. Uh, yes. It, okay. The best part of that movie is the plane is sitting – on the water, they have landed probably three or four minutes ago, and these boats, without asking or permission or anything like that, they just, they were boats that were out on the river, uh, there were a couple of ferries and a couple of pleasure boats, they just turned right around and said, okay, we need to help these people. I mean, the number of people that stepped up at 9-11 to help others um, and I, unselfishly, I we, unselfishly, you know, we have the first responders that we talk about all the time and the, and the doctors and nurses that are on the front lines, you betcha. You know, you're a doctor, I'm, two of my neighbors are nurses and you know, they're, they're in the thick of things, you know, and, but everybody steps up as Americans, we're resilient. We rise to the occasion. We've done it for our whole entire history. And it's just something else that now we've got to deal with. And we are going to deal with it. We are dealing with it. And we're going to get through it. And we're going to come out the other side stronger and smarter because we're going to hopefully learn from it. And it's going to make this country a much stronger place for a lot of the things that we've talked about, like bringing back a lot of the manufacturing, like bringing back medicine production, bringing back uh, other things that we realize are critical to our survival as a nation. We can't depend on some other country that, because what happens tomorrow if they decide, you know, we're dependent on antibiotics from China and decide to stop shipping them. We're in a major problem if that occurs. And then, of course, the whole change to the economy and the system from this, like you said, you have this, you know, the the slogan, remote works. Remote does work, you know, for, you know, maybe not a a one-on-one type of, uh, thing where you've got to be in charge in, in in front of somebody, but for the vast majority of things, we're learning. Wow, I can do this virtually. I can do this remotely. Whether it's surgery or, or, or distance education, like I'm, I have two online courses: one on self defense and one on cybersecurity. How to how to develop a cybersecurity fl- plan for businesses. It's a seven week course, seven modules long. Boom, you can do it online and learn it yourself. You don't got to go hire people to do it. You don't got to hire me to do it. I don't go fly to go there and help you do it. So yes. this is the kind of this is the way I think the world is has been sort of transitioning to that because the online education uh, market has just been exploding in recent years. I mean, the last five years has just seen it go bonkers, and I, I can't remember what the numbers are, but I believe it's going to be in the tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars in education transactions that are going to occur over the next few years because things are just moving that directions when you have individual businesses that are doing multiple millions of dollars a year all you need is you know 100 people doing that and you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just from 
100 people. So, and th- this is all happening and we're seeing this transition occur and it's exciting, you know, and that's the positive that we, we do have to focus on some positives here because there's a lot of positives that I believe are going to come out of it once we get through some of the pain and people are going to die and people are going to be hurt and it's going to be tough, you know, financially, people with paying bills and not having, you know, income coming in for a lot of Americans and a lot of people throughout the world is going to hurt. And it's going to, but it, we have to realize it's a short term, you know, what's the saying, right? Short term pain for long term gain. gain. And I, and I, and I think that is, that is exactly what we're going through. Uh, I'm glad, uh, Dr. Dean, that you believe it's not going to be as serious as maybe some of the, the people that we're seeing on TV are saying it. Uh, whether or not they're saying that because they are trying to err on the side of maybe a little bit of exaggeration to get the point across, I think is important because I know myself, I mean, if I, I drove down to pick up my mail and a, and a package the other day from a UPS store, I get stuff shipped to, and there were a ton of cars out on the road. I mean, you know, people in the lot at Lowe's and it's like people, you're not, you're not doing what, you know, you're being told, but they're out there. And so, it's a, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. So let's, let's talk about this, this combination of drugs that uh, is seeing some really good results. We have the uh, hydroxychloroquine and then azithromycin, which is the z which some people have probably had if they've had bad infections. Um, do you think that is a, a short-term or even a long-term answer or solution to this problem right now? The, I, I've looked at the data, the original data, the first 20 patients from um, uh, Italy actually was a combination of an Italian physician, uh, no, uh, Italian group and a South Korean physician, but they did it the first 20 patients, uh, in Italy, but then subsequently there are now, uh, the last I saw, there were something like 30 patients, um, and, um, uh, like 28 of them cleared the virus. One patient actually died, but they were all, uh, seriously ill. Here's my point. Do I think that it could um, be a curative? The answer is I think there's a real possibility. Most important, I think this is something you have to consider when you have an 85-year-old who's having trouble breathing, who's maybe he's got heart uh, disease and kidney disease and so forth, and coronavirus. Um, You're going to have to give him these or her these drugs Here's the problem. They have side effects. And hydroxychloroquine, I happen to be a cardiologist, it has an effect on the rhythm of your heart. And if you have a rhythm disturbance in the first place, you actually could make that disturbance worse with a drug. So So if you you have have an arrhythmia, that's bad. Yeah. You have to be really careful. The doctor who prescribes this stuff has to know the entire medical history um, of that patient, and it leads me to one other thing that, that um, uh, I'm seeing that I, I'm upset about to an extreme. At least two states I know of are talking about having uh, what they call standards of care to decide who gets a ventilator and who doesn't get a ventilator. Right. And I feel not strongly, but vehemently the only person who can make that decision is the doctor on the scene and not a bureaucrat in some state capital or somebody in Washington. That person on the scene has to decide 
Is this person sick enough for me to, he's got heart disease. Is he sick enough that I'm going to give him hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin? Uh, azithromycin. Well, that's my decision. I'll talk to the uh, uh, patient if the patient uh, is not on a ventilator, in which case I can't talk to him. Um, um, is this patient uh, uh, a candidate for a ventilator? Well, I've only got two ventilators and I got four patients that might. I have to decide. I'm the patient, uh, the doctor on the scene. I have to decide and I don't want any rules or mandates telling me what to do. And that's that sounds um, uh, frightening, but it is frightening. The last reality. thing you want yeah, is a, is a non-physician practicing medicine on a critically ill patient. And that's what these standards of care and mandated algorithms and all these other things, when you have a limited number of resources, the person on the scene with an MD after his name or her name has to decide. Yeah, because you're the only one at that point in time that can make the call. If I provide this care to this person, what's the chances that they're going to survive? If those chances are next to nothing, do you really want to devote those resources to that person? And as opposed to somebody else who's next to them that has a very good possibility of survival. You're the only and one that could possibly make that call, even if the, quote, standard of care that's been mandated says the opposite, right? I mean, it, it makes no sense. I, I, that, that is exactly my point, and the reason I make this as strongly as I do is, you probably don't know this, but the British health uh, system, the National Health Service in Great Britain, which is a single payer, has age thresholds over which you cannot do hydro, uh, a dialysis for kidney failure or open heart surgery over the age of 65 or whatever. That's the single payer government controlled approach to medical rationing. And my very strong position is medical rationing is done between a doctor and a patient, and the government's got no business being in there. And I say that as, as loudly as I can say it, because the people who um, want a single payer don't understand that that means the government will be practicing medicine on them rather than their doctor practicing medicine on them. So that's that's a perfect segue into talking about your book. I want to think I wanted to ask you, but I, I want to uh, share my screen here for our, our listeners and viewers so that they can see uh, your book, which it talks just about this this exact uh, topic. I'm sure, which is curing the cancer in U.S. healthcare, states care, and market based medicine. Right. So tell us a little bit about the book, why you wrote it, and what it's about. The the reason is actually very simple. Um, uh, I, I had this sort of um, epiphany when I was in business school um, and I started studying systems theory and I realized that systems theory is a way to fix a broken system and medicine, practice of medicine, is a way to fix a broken, forgive the phrase, a patient, a, a sick patient. And I realized that I could use the tools of business to study why the patient named US Healthcare is actually sick. And if you know the reason, the root cause, what we call the etiology of a patient's sickness, then you can actually uh, cure that patient rather than simply treat his symptoms. So I spent several years taking all those tools and 
you know, uh, strategic analysis and queuing theory and learning curves and all this. And I applied them to this patient called healthcare. And um, I came out with a diagnosis. And the diagnosis is actually that uh, the U.S. Uh, healthcare system, um, as a patient, has cancer. And the cancer is Washington. <laughs> and to remove the cancer. And uh, that means removing Washington and letting the people in their states decide uh, what kind of a system they have, uh, they should have. Secondly, and possibly more important, that the uh, second half of the subtitle is market-based medicine. And all that really means is that the patient gets back control of his health care and his money so that the patient actually pays the doctor or the hospital or the pharmacy, not some third-party payer. And when that happens, you're going to watch prices plummet. You're going to see people in control of their own lives. And that's what we really want in healthcare, which is people making their own decisions, recognizing they are personally responsible for their health. I'm not, the government is not, and that's what this book says. It says you should be in charge of your money and your health care. You should get the advice of a physician of your choice, not chosen by a health panel or by the government. And that's the book. That's awesome because, you know, free market-based medicine, basically, right? A free market. You, you, you want it to be competitive because it drives prices down. If you have a single-payer system, you have socialized medicine, that is, that's, they're dictating the rules to you. They're telling you when you can live, when you can die, when you can have a procedure, when you can't have a procedure, how much to pay, when to pay, where, where, you know, where to go. All of those choices are taken away from you. And so that's, a, that's fascinating. I love the cover too. You got the stethoscope right on the, sort of the, taking the heartbeat of the United States there. It's, that's a great cover. So you know, uh, I urge people, if they're interested in, in learning more about how we can, correct the problems that are inherent and that exist inside of our healthcare system to get a copy of, of Dr. Dean Waldman's book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, because it's, you know, you uh, it's fantastic. I, I have to say, you mentioned free market and, and in there, because the, the most common complaint I have is, oh, well, yeah, you, your plan sounds right, but I can't possibly afford it. Well, there's a table in there that shows how what the difference in prices are between a third-party payer insurance system and a free market system. And what you quickly see when you look at this table is that patients pay something like 20, 10 to 20% of what the charge is now. Meanwhile, the doctors get paid more and the patients can decide when they get their knee replacement or their uh, cholecystectomy or their, you know, their gallbladder taken out. My point is that once you get beyond the idea of, well, of course the government should take care of me, and you realize, no, I should take care of me, and I want to be in charge of my money and my life, and I can afford uh, all this stuff in a free market. I just can't afford it in the current market. 
it's crazy how you get a bill for something and, and then it's like, you know, this is the billing amount, but you know, this is what you can pay us. Like, well, then why even have that number on there? You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a broken system. So I'm looking forward to, to reading your book. I'm definitely going to get that. And um, so uh, just a couple quick things I want, before we wrap up here, we're, we're, I knew we were going to crank through our hour together. So I appreciate your time. The, w- one of the things that uh, I think people are interested in knowing and you being a, a pediatric doctor would probably be one of the best people that could answer this. Why do you believe or do you know that the young are not being affected by the COVID-19 virus? I do not know the answer to that, but I can speculate. And that is pretty much all viruses that hurt us, that cause sickness, cause sickness in one of two ways. Either our bodies have an immune system that cannot fight off the virus, or that's the elderly, the patients on chemotherapy and so forth, or the virus can actually create an overreaction, an an immune overreaction. And I have to wonder whether, for example, H1N1, which did attack children more than young people, more than old people, whether that was because their immune systems were so good that they overreacted. And that's also why I am not worried terribly about children with COVID because COVID doesn't look like it causes an overreaction. It uh, attacks those who have weakened immune systems, not the really powerful immune system that a five-year-old has who's been playing in the dirt for four and a half years. And that's kind of what I was thinking too, because not only that, but they've, they've been getting vaccinations for years. So their bodies are used to producing the antibodies. So to their bodies, it's like, ah, it's just another virus, boom, produce some antibodies, I'm good to go. That's kind of what I'm thinking because they're used to it. And like you said, they're playing in the dirt, they're around sons of germs, putting their fingers in their mouth, everything goes in their mouth up to a certain age, right? Um, but that's kind of what I was thinking. So that's interesting that you, you, uh, you're pretty much, that's the same track there. Uh, last uh, question, then we'll, we'll have to wrap up here. Uh, because this is something I, I wanted to get to. And, and you talk about what do you mean by, you know, in, in the looking at everything that's happening here, what do you mean by using nations as laboratories of viral research? That was, uh, I was really thinking specifically of, of comparing, uh, I've read a couple of articles comparing Italy's response to COVID virus to South Korea's response to COVID virus. Uh, and what we need to do is, is you know, um, um, Justice Brandeis back in, I think, 34, 35, uh, on a totally unrelated case said, the states have to be laboratories of democracy. Well, I see the nations as being laboratories of viral response. And so okay. that's my point was that we should look at our states and see the differences there, but we should also look at um, China's response. Now, the trouble is we're not gonna probably have reliable data, but okay, to the best we can, let's see what we can get. Italy, South Korea, France, Germany, let's, uh, Great Britain, let's see what they did. You know, I'm talking about uh, next summer, you know, next August, September, October. Um, uh, the CDC 
uh, analysts should sit down and say, okay, let's look at all of this experience and what can we learn so that we can prepare for the next outbreak? Because the only thing I can guarantee is that it will happen. Yes, it definitely will happen again. And we, we unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of people now that maybe didn't really understand what some of these other respiratory illnesses were like, like SARS and MERS, now realize, wow, so this is what an acute respiratory disease could possibly do. And, you know, if we're not prepared, as we've seen what's happening, we can't afford to shut down our economy for a month every time we've got a new outbreak. And, you know, comparing the numbers like we did at the top of the show, compared to the seasonal flu, the numbers we're seeing are nowhere near that. And we don't shut down the, the, the economy and the world and, you know, everything for a month because the flu hits every year. So it'll be interesting you to know, see there's a, there's going another, forward. There's another little lesson, which I don't think is so little, you know, SARS, the R is respiratory. MERS, the R is re- respiratory, just as you said. And COVID, although it doesn't have an R in there, uh, is a respiratory virus. It attacks people who have weakened lungs. And one other thing we ought to learn, uh, of my fellow Americans, is stop smoking. Great advice, because that damages you know, the lungs. Let's face it. If you want to uh, want to be healthy and be protective against this virus, you should have healthy lungs, which means you shouldn't have been smoking for the last 5, 10, 30 years. I just had a bit of an epiphany. I wonder if, and obviously there's no scientific research for this, but I think it should be researched. I wonder if some of the younger people that are succumbing to this vape very interesting thought. I would love to have somebody, and I don't know if anybody's collecting this, specific medical demographic data on all of the patients who have died. I would like to know, you know, uh, do they do autopsies? I mean, I'm a pathologist. I know how hard it is to determine the cause of death, even with an autopsy. So how do you know that that person who is in the the first 19 patients who died in this country all died in a nursing home, average age, something like 86 or something, okay? Right. And they, they tested positive for COVID. My question is, how do we know that they died because of the COVID virus? Maybe they died because of the kidney failure or their chronic lung disease. So right. my point is we need to learn uh, everything we can, and that includes finding out your question, which I uh, hadn't thought of, but uh, it's a very interesting thought. For all I know, those children, the few that have died, or the man who died, the 40-year-old who died in first death in our state here in New Mexico is a 46-year-old. Maybe he's been smoking for 20 years. Right. It's going to be interesting to see what sort of research and data is called from this. It's important to see, not just interesting, because we can learn. And so, you know, a year from now, we can say, okay, this is what we know you shouldn't do for your own safety. And some people will listen and some people won't as they always do. (laughs) So if if our listeners are interested in learning more about you, Dr. Waldman, or if they're interested in getting a copy of uh, your book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, uh, where can our listeners go to learn more? I know you have a personal website, which is your name, right? Dean Waldman, and that's Dean, D-E-A-N-E. Waldman, yeah, my mother put an E on the end of Dean 76 years ago, 
and I've had to qualify for basically all of that time. So it's www.dean with an e Waldman. I encourage people to go to the website partly because of its title, which is "We Can Fix Healthcare." But there's also a lot of uh, free information. There's uh, free videos. You just need to sign up. There's no charge, including the one that just came out, which is um, injecting reality in COVID uh, mass hysteria. And oh, I like um, it. And a lot of people have seen that and have gone, oh, wow, yeah, really. So I encourage people to go to the website. You can get the book Amazon. That's you know no no problem, and it's not expensive. So I mean, it was intended for uh, the general public, not for other policy people or for politicians. Lord right. knows the politicians are not going to like my book because what I'm trying to do is return power to the people, the patients, who I call we the patients instead of we the people, right. uh, instead of keeping it in Washington. So our, you're on social media, I know, so our listeners can search for you on Facebook and LinkedIn and Pinterest. You can find you all over the place and YouTube. So that's fantastic. When we post this, we'll have the links out there. you have any last thoughts for our audience before I let you go, sir? No, I, well, yes. My last thought is we will get through this. We will get through this together. And hopefully, I don't know for sure, but hopefully we will learn from this so that we will be better protected when the next one hits. Excellent. Thank you so much for your, your insights and, and great information for our listeners. Thank you so much for being on Safety Talk, Dr. Wallman. Thanks, of course, to our listeners for tuning in to Safety Talk. And you can always get more information as well as past episodes and additional safety information at safetytalkpodcast.com and direct link right to our YouTube channel at safetytalkvideos.com. So until next time, everybody, please, more than ever, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to Safety Talk. You can listen to past episodes and get the latest safety news at our website, safetytalkpodcast.com. Be sure to visit our other websites for free safety checklists and infographics. You can also sign up for free online self-defense training, learn about college campus safety, and find out more about Pete and how he can help educate your school or business through his speaking, workshops, seminars, and consulting. Subscribe to the Safety Talk podcast and never miss out on any new safety information. Until next time, stay safe.